I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton. As the premier independent bookstore in the Hamptons, Bookhampton has a highly curated selection of books for readers of all ages, unique one-of-a-kind gifts, and exciting author events. Browse their fabulous staff suggestions online at bookhampton.com. I am honored to be interviewing Anne Lamott today. Anne is a best-selling novelist and essayist. Her book, Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing in Life, is a writing classic. She has written seven novels and many nonfiction books, including the autobiographical Operating Instructions, an account of her life as a single mom during her son's first year. She also wrote Some Assembly Required, a journal of my son's first son. She has authored many essay collections on faith. Her latest book, her 18th, entitled Almost Everything Notes on Hope, came out on October 16th. She wanted to call it Doomed, but got advice not to do that. She has won a Guggenheim Fellowship and has taught at UC Davis and at writing conferences around the world. She has even been inducted into the California Hall of Fame. She was dubbed the lefty guru of optimism by the New York Times just this week. She currently lives in Marin County. Hi, Anne. How are you? Hi, fine. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, <laughs> so you are an enormously accomplished and revered iconic writer, yet you started chapter six of Almost Everything Notes on Hope with the following line, so writing, what a bitch. So I was so <laughs> surprised by that. So do you, do you really not enjoy it or you love it, but it's hard? Tell me your thoughts on that. It's hard. It's hard for everyone. It's hard. I mean, what what's the difference is that I've been doing it for so long, for 45 years, that I know it's going to be hard, and I know it's going to go really badly when I start out. And the blessing of knowing that is that I stick with it. But other people that start writing can't believe how hard it is. It really literally is like pulling teeth, and they get discouraged and stop. So it's hard. And then, you know, you have every writer, whether it's a beginner or an old timer, has these built in critical voices and that tell you it's not going well. <laughs> and even before you start, they're telling you that it's not going well and that no one is going to be interested and somebody's already done it or or whatever. And, you know, that you're beating a dead horse. And so, you know, mining is hard and being a house cleaner is hard and writing is a different kind of hard. It can be a mentally exhausting thing to do with your life. <laughs> but, you know, there's ways to grind that down and there's ways to just keep doing it and wait for something to take itself off and let you run alongside of it trying to capture it. So that will happen, but you have to sit there through the part where you don't think it's going very well or it's ever going to turn into anything meaningful or that anyone's going to ever be interested in reading it. Plus, you're a terrible writer. You just have to grind that down by sitting there for and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you talk to a, a bad roommate. And you said to writers, you said, write because you have a story to tell, not because you think publishing will make you the person you always wanted to be. There is approximately zero chance of that happening. <laughs> right. So you, and you say in your book and, you know, in this conversation already, just, just to write, just the first step is just getting it all on the page and shaping it later. Is that the way you approached this particular book? I had made a list when I was turning 64 of everything that I thought was true that I could pass on to my grandson who lives here half time and my niece that I wish someone had told me when I was younger, such as that 
everybody's screwed up on the inside. Everybody is, <laughs> is insecure and has a raging wounded ego and thinks that they need to lose or gain weight or do this or that or that, you know, the culture just tells you so many lies about yourself. And you're in your family. You came up with these crazy ways of surviving stress or, or whatever, and that we all have them. And I wanted the kids to know you don't have to compare your insides to other people's outsides because when you get to know these people who seem so perfect on the outside, it turns out they're just like us. You know, they, we're all just pretty, it's a human condition. We're sort of afraid and we're sort of blowhards and we're sort of controlling. And so I wanted to tell them really what's true about writing, which is that the publishing won't make you well and fill all those Swiss cheese holes inside of you, but the writing will, the being an artist will, the being a co-creator in the world will, and uh, that you have to make yourself do it. You know, I taught writing for years and people were always explaining to me why they weren't actually writing right then. Usually it had to do with having little kids or taking care of their old folks or that they still had a job or that they were tired, whatever. And I always said, if you know, they'd say, well, as soon as I move to the Russian River or as soon as my last kid is out, I said, no, you won't write then either. You know, <laughs> you, you, you either are doing it every day for a little bit or it's not going to happen. So um, that's the other things I knew for sure is that, of course, everything will work again if you unplug it, including you. And that death is really, really not that scary once you get to be 30 or something. It's terrifying when you're young and then somebody, you see somebody die and, and they were cared for and blessed and safe and pain-free and it still sucked, but that everybody came through. I want to tell them things like that, which no one had told me when I was coming up. Thank you for sharing that with all of us. I mean, I'm a beneficiary of that advice, so I really appreciate it. I'm sure I'm speaking for everybody, but in fact, what you just mentioned, your line, almost anything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you, you made that an entire chapter, chapter four, which was yeah. great. That's like the it's best so chapter. Important. I'm like, okay, I read one chapter. Now I can go to bed. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought of you this morning when I was unplugging my toaster, which was not working for some reason. So I'm like plugging it, plugging it back in. And I'm like, now I think I'm supposed to be unplugging. Isn't that what Anne Lamott said? <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, how how do you unplug? How do you unplug and recharge yourself? Well, I leave. I go outside a lot. I leave the phone behind if I can. I unplug electronically if I can. I um, I look up. I take a nap every afternoon. I'm really tired. I like. I just love to to have a blanket and my dog and to read for a little bit and then close my eyes for 45 minutes. That's my big unplug. And I, yeah, I make myself get away from the TV and from social media. And yeah, I do the same things you do. You know, I, I get up and I make myself a cup of tea. I, I go visit people who are really troubled and sad or lonely. I go visit them and I unplug and I sit there and I listen to them. So yeah, same things you do. (laughs) I love also in the book how you said, don't let others make you feel unsophisticated if you reach middle age preferring Hershey Kisses. <laughs> and you said that versus That's Hershey right. Kisses versus dark That's chocolate. That's a whole chapter too. I know, that was great. <laughs> I, yeah, because I think 85% cacao is not really, was never intended to be an edible. 
and that it's supposed to be used for shims if you're somewhere with a wobbly table. It'll help you have a little 85% chocolate bar. And then people eat it because it's lower carb or because it's a good, supposedly a good diet food or dark cho- There's dark chocolate. That's like 60%, right? And 65 if it's great dark chocolate. 85% cacao. And some strange alien humans love it and I accept that about them but not me I'm Hershey <laughs> Kisses all the way in M&M's I can't go above 72 percent that's my that's my limit on the dark chocolate uh-huh. <laughs> you also told a story that a former therapist of yours told you were starting a new diet ages ago and you told your therapist and she said oh that's great honey how much weight are you trying to gain <laughs> which yep. is such a great reflection on what dieting actually does. What's your current view on, on dieting and your relationship with your body basically this at this point? Well, I really wrote the chapter for my niece who's 15 and way too big. And, you know, all teenagers think they're defective and unattractive. But I, I wanted to write it to her because that is a reality that you think you're unattractive or you need to do this or that to be accepted by the world. But the dieting won't help it in any way. And so, but what will help is a radical self-care and time with your very, very best friend and getting out of yourself to, you know, hook into something much bigger and spacious like nature or your spiritual path besides your thighs (laughs) (laughs) And, and what your thighs are telling you about your worth or what the scale is telling you about your worth as a human being. And 95% of diet, I mean, it's wonderful to be healthy and have exercise and to feed yourself delicious, nourishing food, but a diet is never the answer. And I try it all the time, but it's kind of like a slip. And I tried it for the book tour. I thought, well, I should get a little thin because I'm on stage and this and that. And it didn't work. (laughs) I mean, first of all, I was still on stage and I also, I was on in room service a lot and that's never going to be a huge contributor to to increase slenderness. And (laughs) all I could do finally was just this radical self-care and to say to myself, you, it was like that old Saturday Night Live, you'll look marvelous and put on clothes that I felt pretty in and eat the healthiest food I could at that meal. That's great. I love that advice. You, I keep switching gears here to fit everything in, but you've been sober and off of cigarettes since you were 32 years old. And by 35, you were already a well-regarded novelist with a newborn. In this book, you wrote about your challenges and some of those of your family members along the way. And you wrote, my lifelong and core belief right after the conviction that I was defective, mildly annoying, and better than everyone else was that my help was helpful. So why did you come to the conclusion that your help wasn't helpful? And then what would you tell readers or listeners to do if they're watching a loved one struggle the way you watch your loved ones? Well, it really is important to say that if it's a young kid, you know, obviously you're in charge of their safety and and spiritual and and physical nurture. But with a grown child, you know, a child over 18, there's a line in almost everything that help is the sunny side of control. And that I had to look at how much I was trying to control my son after he was 18, how much I'm, how sure I was that my idea of his destiny was a good idea for his destiny and that he should pursue this. <laughs> it's all, it's disrespectful for one thing and it's useless for another. I mean, they resist and they recoil. And so it was mostly that you stop trying it because it doesn't work. 
<laughs> what a concept, right? <laughs> that, and that you release people, that you release people with love to their own destiny. And if they ask you for advice, you share it. But that to barge onto somebody else's emotional acre and tell them how they ought to be living, A, it's disrespectful, B, it doesn't work, and C, they're going to have to run and hide from you because you're so toxic. <laughs> That's probably true. I love that. Barge into someone else's emotional anchor. What a great quote. Anchor, yeah. Anchor, yeah, yeah, yeah. anchor. Sorry, anchor. That's beautiful. So I read that you met your current love interest online, and I was so surprised to hear that. Can you tell me a little about that? Yeah, I... When I was 62, I, no, 61, I think, I went on Match at Match.com, and I spent a year with mostly pretty terrible dates, but I learned how to date. I learned what I needed. I learned what I love. You know, I love talk. I love really highly intelligent conversation. I love long conversations with women about real things like our lives and our, our families and our bodies and our our deepest truth. And I realized with these guys I was meeting, half of whom brought manuscripts or wanted to bring manuscripts, I realized that I was settling for guys that had all these other qualities, but except for this thing I love most, which is to be with somebody who, no matter what the topic is, politics or religion or families or our work or whatever, were really highly intelligent and sensitive and funny. And so I spent a year learning to date and not finding anyone. Yeah, I had little runs with certain guys, but then I signed on to Our Time, which is for slightly older people. And I eventually saw this guy and he was handsome. I liked his looks and very intelligent and funny. And I wrote that I liked his profile. It turned out he was very allergic to cats. So I said, well, this will never work because my cat is my life and (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And then he said, no, if we put brewer's yeast on the cat's kibble, it greatly, greatly reduces my allergies. And I said, no, no, no. And I thought, oh, I'm sure he has a manuscript he wants me to read. And then about three months later on our time, I saw this really intelligent guy, really good looking, nice sense of humor. (laughs) I wrote to him. Oh, I really like your profile. <laughs> and he said, you already rejected me. I think it was because I wasn't Jesus-y enough. <laughs> and I said, no, it was because of the cat. And and so we met for coffee. And when we he started talking, we were talking about real stuff. We were talking about life and God and literature and movies and our children. And, and we've been talking all day, every day since. That was two years and three months ago. And then... About a month and a half ago, we were sitting on the couch watching the U.S. Open tennis matches and at night, and he said, can I ask you something? I said, oh, sure, because we're putting in a carport. And so I thought he wanted to talk about the gravel because we had a disagreement about the gravel. <laughs> I said, oh, sure. And he said, will you marry me? And I said, wait, what? And, um, <laughs> and then he said, no, if you don't want to be married, we can have this life that I love so much. But if you do, I'd love to be married to you. And so then I thought for a minute, I said, okay, can I have a cat? And then it turned out he had a ring and in his pocket. And it was so pretty. It's just so me. It's pink rose, which rose gold, which I really love. And teeny, teeny little diamonds on the band. And so, yeah, so my son, Sam, who has a site called How to Human, a podcast with amazing people, Brene Brown and... 
Gloria Allred and Jack Cornfield and Frank Rich and all these amazing people. His battle cry is, we never give up. That's what, in his How to Human podcast, he really talks about how you don't give up in this these cold, dark, scary days. And that's my message to people is, I'm 64 now. I will turn 65 three days before our wedding, and he'll still be 63 because he's 15 months younger than I am. So he'll be one year younger in a little while. But so, you know, you just don't give up. You don't give up no matter how long it takes. You don't give up just because it looks so doomed or scary out there you just keep the faith you do the radical self-love you take care of people you help the poor you help your cranky uncle you try to eat as well as you can you forgive yourself when you don't and who knows what god's got up her sleeve wow that's great advice thank you for that you have done so many amazing things you've written so many books and contributed so much to society and culture and everything if you could ask listeners to remember just one thing about you what would it be Mm, that i really really love life i really love it and i also have found it very hard here and that everyone i love that has changed and helped me sustain a really high quality of life has found that to be true, that if you find it to be hard, good, come pull up a seat by the table because we're probably really interested in hearing your story. And don't give up no matter what things look like and no matter how long it takes. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And thanks for inspiring me to live a better life. (laughs) Good. Thank you for having me. Of course. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton, bookhampton bookhampton.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) 